Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello and welcome. You're listening to Four for State, the show where journalists talk journalism. Coming to you from Tourist in Sydney, on Gadigal lands of the Euro Nation, right across Australia on the Community Radio Network, and directly to your device across the globe via podcast. My name is Anthony Dockrell. Tonight's show was recorded recently at the University of Technology as part of a series called Meet the Journalist. And it features Chief Economics Correspondent for the ABC, Emma Alberici. The interview was conducted by UTS student Olivana Smith-Lavros and over the next 30 minutes you'll hear Emma Alberici talk about her career and including her most recent battles with former Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull. I kind of want to start at the beginning of your journey um, and that's probably where a lot of us are sitting you know, here today, which is at university. Um, I know that you studied two potentially very different things, so economics and journalism. Um, so other than the fact that you're now the chief economics correspondent at the ABC, how important do you think that it is that journalism students study maybe two things or specialise in two maybe very different aspects of their studies before they go into a career? I think... Uh, it's not quite right to say they were two completely different things because, generally speaking, uh, when you become a senior journalist, and this is, you know, very broadly speaking, I guess there are sort of three strands people tend to focus on. They're either a political journalist, a business journalist or a sports journalist in very broad terms uh, because... In the end, when you've been doing it for a long time and I'm coming up to my 30th year, um, you know, you, you, you sort of... I was told very early on that it was uh, important, actually, by my uh, earliest boss, Terry McCran, on the Herald Sun newspaper, who's um, still a business editor at News Limited, and, and he said, you know, you, you, it's very important... And I thought he was he was a little bit, uh, you know, he was quite prescient because this was back in 1993. He was saying to me, um, TV and visual media is really about to take off. And this was a guy who'd already been around, you know, a couple of decades. And he was seeing the writing on the wall and saying, having a specialty like business is never going to let you down, you know. And, and the thing is that uh, it is important to specialise because I think... Uh, you know, into the future already we're seeing trusted voices are what trust is sort of the currency of the new media and trusted voices are those who know a specialty area really well. 
Mm, that's great advice. Um, so this is something that I probably want to come back to in a bit more detail later on. But um, as you mentioned, you began your career in newspaper with the Herald Sun and then you worked for the small business show with Nine. So when did you decide to move away from you know commercial news into the ABC? What kind of triggered that decision for you? And what did you learn from those you know two earlier jobs in your career? Um, look, I think I've had a really privileged background in the media because I've had this incredible perspective that that's you know gone from News Limited to Channel 9 a, a, a um, commercial broadcaster and then the ABC and I've had a significant chunk of time in each I was at nine for 10 years and I've been at the ABC um, 17 and I was at News Limited for almost four years uh, before that and they've all been extraordinarily um, uh, instructive in terms of, you know, the way I, I handle um, the craft. Why did I leave? It wasn't a, a decision to leave commercial for public broadcasting in particular. It was just that at the time I left Nine in 2000 and uh, the end of 2001, 2002, um, things were already changing and Nine was becoming what I thought was increasingly tabloid. I'd started on a current affair with um, Ray Martin. And in fact, I had my first ever um, finalist nod in the Walkleys working for a current affair, doing a business story, a really serious business story. Uh, and I just wasn't convinced that by 2001, they were the sort of stories a current affair wanted to do anymore. And I'd been on uh, Business Sunday, and uh, Today Show, and and uh, I actually joined Channel Nine uh, to to work on the Money Show with Paul Clitheroe. I don't know if you remember that. It was really pioneering because it was the first time they were tackling business and finance in prime time. And I thought, mm -hmm. wow. And actually, the backstory is it was a bit of sliding door moment because I was on the Herald Sun uh, as a cadet. We had to do three months in. <laughs> different departments and so I'd done three months with uh, the business unit because that was my interest and then I'd done three months with photographers and uh, was very lucky to sit on the sidelines of the AFL grand final ferrying. They were the days you'd ferry little canisters of film back to the dark room to get developed. <laughs> we like to call them the dark ages. Um, and, uh, and then I spent three months working on the Sunday Herald Sun TV magazine which was not where I saw myself in journalism but then when I was working a couple of years in uh, the business section, I happened to walk past the TV uh, buddies that I'd made and they went, oh, Emma will be interested in this. We're not interested in this. This is, you know, Channel 9 dabbling in finance in prime time. Ha, ha, ha. They're having a... I was, you know, 23 years old. They said, well, you know, Channel 9 in Sydney is having a, um, a launch party uh, next Tuesday night. And I went, yes, I'll go, you know. And so, and that's it. And that's where I met all the Channel 9 people because I started asking them questions about the sorts of stories they were going to do. And I think they hadn't thought about, you know, that far ahead. <laughs> so right place, right time. Yeah, definitely. Um, so fast forward a little bit. Um, I know, as you said, you were there for a while. So I feel like we're skipping a big chunk of your career. Oh, but okay. um, So, you know, Talking about late line, mm. what was it like to be hosting one of the most influential current affairs programs on television? And you know, what was late line doing that current other current affairs shows at the time weren't? It it really was the absolute. I mean, I thought being um, the Europe correspondent was going to be the highlight of my career, and it was. Uh, but honestly, it was 
the most incredible six years and such a privilege to host Lateline, mostly because the thing that absolutely um, uh, set it apart from anything else on the TV news landscape is that you had the ability to do a very in-depth interview and I don't think there's anywhere else uh, on any network anymore that allows you to do a newsmaker of the day, which is different to, say, a show like One Plus One, uh, which is which is one I'm filling in on at the moment, where you do a half-hour interview, and that's terrific, but it's not necessarily, uh, you know, coordinated to the news of the day. So you don't get that same opportunity to be, you know, as current and uh, on... Uh, uh, on point. And so I was very lucky to be able to have a politician sit in front of me for 18 minutes. There was this fantastic First Dog on the Moon um, cartoon. I don't know if you all know First Dog on the Moon and The Guardian. And uh, it was the year I started on Late Line. It was hilarious. You know, he does these really long, you know, expansive cartoons that go for a whole page. And uh, and it was a, a lesson in uh, how to how it was media management for politicians and in one of the little squares it said and when late line asks you will you be interviewed and all the people in the audience went we say no <laughs> because um you know sitting in front of a journalist talking about your portfolio in a day that you made the news for 18 minutes as opposed to giving a 12 second grab for twitter or you know uh another social media platform or the seven o'clock news or the six o'clock news on a commercial network is a piece of cake when you've got to expand on that for 18 minutes that can get you into knots you're unable to get yourself out of again yeah I liked that yeah I'm sure you did (laughs) um but you know that's not an easy thing to do and um having that you know we all know that politicians are, are very good at dodging the question. Mm. They speak a lot and don't necessarily answer the question mm. that you're asking. Mm. And 18 minutes is a long time to be grilled, but in a way, not a long time at all when you're really trying to get um, something out of somebody. So what's your, you know, how did you develop that skill? Um, and how hard was that when you came into Late Line to really get those critical answers and get a really good interview where you got something really meaty and juicy out of a politician? Uh, okay, so there's a few things there. First of all, how to get... Um the most out of the interview, whether it was a politician or anyone else, I think that it, it, I always felt this great uh, responsibility to know my subject really, really well, and I took that very seriously. And so, I would start researching the topic we were likely to be interviewing on, even if I didn't know who our our subject would be early in the morning Mm -hmm. and I'd still be reading something as I was running into the studio if it was live at 10.30 at night. I mean, I took that really seriously. You know, I I never wanted to let the viewer down. If they're going to sit with me at 10.30 at night, I have to give them a reason to do that and I Mm want to be fully across my my brief and I thought it would be insulting to the audience not to be. And so it also meant that over time, if someone was sitting in front of me saying... And I can't tell you an example right now, but um, 
Oh, I can tell you an example of someone I recently interviewed on a stage in Byron Bay, and I won't tell you which politician it was, but they told me uh, because, you know, among coalition politicians, it's quite de rigueur to say that I don't know anything about economics. And so they were saying that um, they were trying to school me in economics and I came back and said, um, thank you, but isn't your qualification in ophthalmology? <laughs> because I happened to look at his CV as I was walking on the stage. <laughs> so, you know, you can, it can work in your favour to do as much research as possible. You never know when you're going to need to slap them down. <laughs> Excellent advice. As well as Noted. grill them on the subject area. For the <laughs> Absolutely. Better understanding of the subject. Of course. Um, um, oh, the other thing was about that, that, um, yes, the most, I think you asked me also the most difficult thing about that, people being media trained within an inch of their life, which yep. is a, you know, modern malady for us. And, and I think that um, there are a couple of politicians and Malcolm Turnbull, we all know, was absolutely masterful in uh, the way he would dodge a question was to, and a few of us who do interviewing for a living would laugh and compare notes on it, interviewing Malcolm Turnbull, because he would do, and he knew it, and I said it to him once, and he sort of had a bit of a knowing chuckle because he'd go, he'd try to use up the time so he couldn't get to the next question. So just when you thought he was finished the answer, he'd go, let me give you an anecdote. Go, I don't want the anecdote. Like, I actually think I once said on air, I don't want the anecdote. I'm going to the next question. <laughs> because it was, a, it was a ploy to sort of, you know, kind of delay the next question. And, and they do develop their own little, uh, you know, quirks to get around uh, the questions. But you have to sort of be brave enough. And, and, and the, the flip side of being brave enough to cut them off and, and it's a constant weighing up, is the audience hates it when you cut off someone. So the switchboard would go crazy. Um, you know, that was so rude and why didn't you let them finish their answer? And the fact is you've got someone in your ear in the control room going, 10 minutes to go, 6 minutes to go, 4 minutes to go, and you go, God, I've got 12 more questions. You can't give me an anecdote, you know, because you've got the pressure of, of you've only got a certain amount of time, and so it's, it's a balance. Well, if I cut you off halfway through an answer as we get to the end, that'll be I right. I'll give you an anecdote. <laughs> Another an anecdote. <laughs> um, so, you know, like you said, you have to be quite ruthless um, sometimes in order to just to get the interview done in the allocated amount of time. Um, but yourself, along with a whole host of other highly notable journalists, including Lee Sales, have, you know, um, been criticised about your interview styles. In an article in the Sydney Morning Herald, you responded to a comment by Malcolm Turnbull, um, who said, um, you know, he said that your interview style was aggressive. And your response to that was, when I do a tough interview, I might be called an aggressive bitch. But when Tony Jones does a similar interview, he's just tough. Um, and that's something that we grapple with as female interviewers because they we don't want to, because people don't want to view us as tough. So can you maybe talk a little bit more about you know about that comment and um, what do you think some of the struggles are um, you know being a female in the industry or not even necessarily a female but just being um, a tough interviewer in the industry doing a job? Uh, I think I think there as I said there are so many uh, challenge uh, you know so many. Um, demands on you for time and so on. So you can come across as being 
a little bit too aggressive. Um, I think that uh, broad, broader than that, it, it, it is absolutely germane to the conversation that being a woman in society, we're not feminine if we're if we're being tough, you know, and we are viewed in a certain way that we can't escape still. We have certain expectations, you know, on us to be, you know, the caring, softer, feminine. And so when you break from that mould in any respect, whether it's as a journalist or in any other, um, you know, I have a friend of hers who's a barrister and she says the same thing, you know, when she's tough on someone in the witness box, you know, she gets a lot of flack for that because we expect men to be sort of more assertive than, yep. you know, and, and, and that's a, 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 a product of, 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 you know, history yep. where we weren't even allowed to, to work, you know, only 50 years ago. You know, this is a long time to unravel, this takes, you know. So it was one thing to accept women to, you know, as workers once they were uh, married. You know, once upon a time we weren't allowed to, to work once we got married, so in the public service, and that would have uh, also incorporated the ABC. So it's going to take a long time to change people's just ingrained perceptions of what it means to be a woman and what it means to be a man. And I think that's no one's fault. I think it's just going to take time, unfortunately, for those of us uh, in front of the camera who are women to show the example of being just as as competent as the men, as as the same would be said of men who want to be nurses, not constrained by the idea being only girls are nurses or, you know, it's it goes both ways. And I think that is uh, a product of history that we have to break from and it's going to take time. Mm. And do you think, I mean, you mentioned that, you know, you know, that is just going to be a process of time and that, you know, as, as women in front of the camera or, as you said, as, you know, men in other fields that we just have to do our job diligently and wait for that time to kind of, for that to, you know, for that to progress. But do you think that there's anything else that can be done in the industry that we can actively be doing aside from just hitting back when claims like that are fired at us about? Oh, yes, like we can push for more women in management and more women decision makers in the media. Mm. At the moment, we still... You know, we, we briefly had a female news director in Kate Tawney at the ABC, and I think I'm still right to say we don't have a female news director among any of the uh, TV networks, uh, I'm pretty certain. That's what the now. No, well, we still, we don't at the ABC. Judith well, news directors, yeah. our news director is Gavin Morris. Uh, you know, we, we don't have a female, you know, head of news. No. Uh, anywhere, I don't think, in the networks in Australia, including the ABC. Uh, I think the more women we have in leadership positions, uh, the, the, that will also change story selection. I mean, whose decision is it that, you know, a certain story leads the news on a particular night and, and, and leads the front pages of the newspapers? I mean, you know, the newspapers are all... Uh, the helm of all the newspapers are still men too. Uh, and I think that uh, in terms of how society sees itself, we have a very big role to play in the media, whether you're in newspapers, radio or TV. Mm. And so I think the more women we have in leadership positions, the more likely we are to see ourselves differently. For instance, um, you still see headlines that say mother of two, blah, blah, but you know, who cares that she was a mother, but and we don't do that in the same way when we're referring to a man. And so we still constrain um, 
one half or 51% of the population, you know, we still say they're the carer, they're the mother, they're the da, and that can be perpetuated by the media. And so I think more women. So yes, everyone should um, aspire to lead. I want you to be running the ABC News division at some point or nine or 10 or something. Noted that, I will quote you on that at a later stage <laughs> of my career. <laughs> um, there are a million questions that um, I would love to ask you about late line, but I'm very aware of the time. Um, and Pat has just <laughs> given I done me- that thing. <laughs> no, not at all, but Pat's just giving me um, a little note. So I think we'd like to move to, you know, your foreign correspondent days, which you said were, you know, the highlight of your career. So I'm gonna pass to Pat, who's just gonna ask a couple of questions about that. Yeah, so, um, as you were the ABC's Europe correspondent, um, I believe you were the yeah the first um, posted as a mother of three children. Um, did having the <laughs> um, did, they were all under three. Did did having those parental responsibilities uh, while being the Europe's ABC correspondent make it especially hard? Um, I said that when I got the job, I actually really would have preferred being in a war zone than being at home with three kids under three. (laughs) It's sort of the same thing. Um, uh, It did make it hard. Uh, It made it hard, for instance, in a financial sense, because generally speaking, and I've reported a lot in this field in an economic sense, when women are working in very senior positions, they tend to pay uh, for uh, help in a way that men in senior positions don't because they, generally speaking, have a wife or a, or a mother at home looking after um, children in the home. And so economically, it was quite difficult being in London and having to pay for things like nannies and housekeepers and things because it's not the same as being posted in Bangkok where those things are really quite reasonably priced. Um, it was uh, no tougher than it would be for a man with children, I don't think, in terms of um, missing kids or whatever. And, you know, frankly, when you've got very small children, uh, they, uh, I always instinctively thought they were going to need me more when they were in school than when they were really little and, and needing the basics. Um, and I think that's proved correct because I now have 11, 13 and 15 and that's much harder than... <laughs> than the baby days. <laughs> um, what, while you were over there, um, what would you say was the most challenging story that you covered? Uh, there were a number that were challenging for different reasons. Uh, I was over there and given my Italian language skills, spent a lot of time covering uh, Italian Prime Minister Silvio Berlusconi's various travails in the courts. <laughs> that was a challenge. Uh, trying to work out how on earth we have, you know, the leader of the third biggest country in the Eurozone and you're in a courtroom in Milan listening to whether or not he slept with an 18-year-old and, you know, and uh, meanwhile, you know, was paying someone off uh, who was also some kind of, you know, organised crime boss and whatever. Meanwhile, you know, the, the Italian public, you know, he was going up in the popularity ratings, which, you know... This sort of would have felled any other leader anywhere else in the world. That was uh, that was challenging, you know, interesting, I guess. Challenging in a physical sense. I covered the um, the GFC. Obviously, I was very lucky, right place at the right time for someone with my background. And I went to Athens during the riots over the you know the constant um, renegotiation of their debt. Um, uh, their debt to the European Union and to the IMF, and so that always ended with riots in Syntagma Square. And so I got tear gassed 
uh, within minutes of having to go live on Late Line, actually, and couldn't open my eyes and was getting fanned and, you know, sort of crying on air uh, oh while I was getting interviewed because, I, you know, that was, that was sort of tough for a physical uh, reason. But the toughest story, I think, was the first one I did off base, which was the story of Britt Lap- Lapthorne who was the 21-year-old backpacker who went missing in Dubrovnik, Croatia. It was the very first story that I did out of London and it was heartbreaking because uh, her dad was there and we were a small contingent of, you know, News Limited and Fairfax and 7, 9, 10 and us and him the dad and so like at night we'd all get together and have dinner or whatever we were waiting for word of what happened and then when she was when her body was found we all felt too invested because we'd been with the dad all through it and and it was um it was quite traumatic to report on something you've become quite close to and uh and so I guess that was that was one of the ones that you know when you're off base and you're staying with the people you're reporting on that can be really tough yeah Mm -hmm. I suppose it's also a matter of like separating your Emotional yeah, self of course. From the story. Yeah, and that's not always as easy as it sounds. Yeah. Um, what advice would you give to any aspiring journalists in the room for whom their end goal may, may well be to be a foreign correspondent? I think if you want to do anything in the news business that is um, significant, whether that's being posted overseas or, or um, being the chief economics correspondent or, or hosting 7.30, I think the best piece of advice I can give is look for great stories now. It's never too early to find a great story and pitch it. Uh, You know, the the basis of what we do is being able to identify a really compelling story and, uh, and tell it well. And the telling it well is what you're learning to do here, but you will, you should, um, um, I guess if you if you're interested in the craft, understand what makes a great story and what what um, separates it from any other story you hear out and about. So it's a it's a process of of uh, being very sociable, having you know lots of being interested in people. You know, I'm always meeting new people all the time, and people I'm endlessly curious about people, and it's people who give you stories and. Being trustworthy and meeting lots of people is um, sounds twee, but that's actually the bottom line. Always look for an interesting story and then go pitch it to a news editor. Awesome. Yeah. Um, thanks very much for that. Um, yeah. Monica, <laughs> would you like to say something? <laughs> I'm always directing from the sidelines. Okay. Occupational hazard. Um, so I'd like to move now to just a few questions about a story that you wrote last year that resulted in a significant controversy. <laughs> Emma's like, hmm. <laughs> um, including the former ABC chairman Justin Millen resigning from his position. Um, journalism in Australia is under the microscope and the freedom of journalists to produce public, produce public interest journalism um, is under attack. And you experienced that kind of scrutiny firsthand um, with your tax story, which was described by the PM as one of the most confused and poorly researched articles I've ever seen on this topic on the ABC's website. I don't really want to dwell so much on the story itself, um, but more what that was like for you and what you learned from that experience, because as a journalist, you're not really used to being the story. So what was that like for you? Which bit? 
I guess the idea. There's a lot of bits. <laughs> there is a lot of bits. I guess, I guess the feeling of kind of being under the microscope in that capacity, you know, with someone, you know, with the prime minister um, launching those kind of comments, comments with you and being at the centre of that story, opposed to being on the flip side of it. Uh, look, um, uh, the story itself. Uh, I don't think there's been a story in the history of the ABC that's been so forensically analysed by so many people. Mm. And in the end, you know, it's been well uh, reported on that there were two tiny little errors that were sort of missed in the in the sub-editing that were inconsequential to the story. And and but the story made made the government uncomfortable and it made big business uncomfortable. And I think my tabloid background meant that. I very deliberately presented it so people understood it, right? It's very easy as a business journalist to present things in a way using jargon and so on that make it very difficult to understand. Yeah. Um, now, how was that from the inside? It was, it was tough because, uh, you know, it's never nice to be, you know, to have your, uh, your ethics and your competence questioned, especially when you've been doing it for 30 years. Um, I think that uh, the worst part of it was when the media turns on itself, when when other journalists write nasty stories to try to, um, you know, do a sort of one-upman thing. And it's no no secret that uh, News Limited, a news corp in Australia, uh, has it in for the ABC. Uh, you know, as does Sky News. I mean, that's no secret. That's no nothing new. They like to talk about us more than they like almost to talk about what's making news in the world, which I find endlessly fascinating. And some of the things that were written about me were very personally uh, distressing. Uh, the Financial Review in one of their stories said Alberici, a woman of considerable self-belief, because of course, being a woman and having self-belief is a pejorative. Whereas men are just assumed to have self-belief. But if a woman has it, it's a bad thing. Uh, I, I thought some of the things that were written were a little gendered like that. Mm. And I was very, uh, I was quite disgusted, actually, that people were playing the man and not the ball. Like, let's talk about whether, you know, there ought to be a tax cut and what the arguments are for at the top end of town. Let's talk about how companies manage one in four of the top companies that were being talked about getting a tax cut weren't paying it. That is where we have to leave the discussion. You have been listening to Emma Alberici, Chief Economics Correspondent for the ABC, talking about her career. She was talking with Olivana Smith-Lavros as part of the UTS Meet the Journalist series. You can find the full talk at the UTS website. And thank you for listening to Forfa State. This edition was recorded at the studios of Tourist and heard across the country on the Community Radio Network. Make sure you subscribe to Forfa State on your favourite podcast app so you can hear us talk media, politics and a few things in between. We'll be back with more next week. But in the meantime, you can stay in touch with us on Twitter. Our handle is Forfa State AU. My name is Anthony Dockrell. Thanks for listening. <laughs>